What is up, my guys? Thanks for tuning in for another episode of Big Stick Energy. Uh, my name is Tori, as you well know by now. Um, and I'm on this episode today with Renee. She's not here for the intro, but I feel like you guys know the drill at this point. Uh, you know, it's September, May long weekend. We're headed into winter and we're getting pretty freaking stoked for it. Um, so we're trying to amp up the uh, kind of ski and snowboard mountaineering athletes that we're interviewing. And today we got to interview Katie Combaluzier. Um, she is a Canadian Paralympic sit skier as well as a family medical resident. Um, today we kind of jumped into her story, her journey, and she really opened up to us about what it's been like to join the disability uh, disabled community. Because the reality is any of us could end up there at any time. Um, she shared what that journey has been like for her, not only in skiing, so transitioning from ski racing to racing in the Paralympics in sit skiing, but also what it's like to work as a disabled uh, person, like a wheelchair user in the medical industry. And these are the types of conversations I feel like able-bodied people don't have very often. So it was super highlighting. Um, we also talked about her experience with the Paralympics and kind of like the ableism around the, the Paralympics and the, the general vibe of it is kind of weird. Um, it's something that needs to evolve as we create more inclusive spaces for disabled people in the outdoors and in sports. But um, the most important thing that we talked about is how freaking gnarly sit skiing is. Like, I know a lot of people have not actually watched the Paralympics. I know for myself, before I started working um, with Alpine Canada, I hadn't watched the Paralympics before. And watching them this year, I was like literally up and down, out of my seat, just like totally puckered watching the gnarly shit that these people are doing and like watching a sit skier go down a downhill course like in a speed event when they go down they go down freaking hard like it is gnarly shit so huge respect for katie she is such a certified badass and she really opens up to us today so this episode is one of my favorite ones that i think we've done in a while i know i say that all the time but yeah, I really enjoyed talking to her. So I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Um, we're going to dip into a couple ads quickly. You know the drill, got to pay the bills. And uh, yeah, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Thanks. Hope you're having a good day. Our first sponsor for today's show is Darn Tough Vermont. They make merino wool socks. These socks are lightweight. They wick better than cotton. And they really have socks for every activity. They've got your winter skiing snowboarding socks as well as your summer activity socks so lately i have been wearing the no show merino sock for both trail running and a little bit hiking as well sometimes with hiking i prefer the mid height just because you're going through kind of like the brush sock but darn tough has both i've tried both they're really awesome they have kept my feet dry wicking away the moisture on some really hot days lately. So Darn Tough Vermont, go check out their website. They call them Darn Tough because they are tough. Go and grab yourself a pair and keep your feet happy and blister free and dry. Thank you to Onyx for sponsoring today's show. Onyx is a GPS app. You can use it in the summer, you can use it in the winter. Lots of people use it for skiing through winter, but I had the chance to use it this summer. It shows you everything from campsites to hiking trails to forestry roads. I'm not sure if those are called something different in the States, 
But what worked really well for me when I was using it last week, being down in the USA, I didn't have any data on because I didn't want to be charged roaming. So I downloaded some of the areas that I was going to be in in an offline map. And then I was able to look at that area without having any data and still have access to any information about that hike, the weather, etc., as well as just being able to see where I was at along that trail the entire time. So Onyx, you can download their app in the App Store. Super helpful app for planning your trip and for keeping yourself on track while you're out there. Winter is coming, my dudes, which means you need to get your gear so you can stay warm out there, especially if you are in the Northern Hemisphere, because I think it is forecasted to be a super deep, super cold one. So I'm getting ready for winter by putting together my kit with my rumple blanket. Uh, my partner just got a uh, go fast camper kind of canopy topper for his truck and we're going to be doing some winter camping as we're ski touring and there's honestly nothing better than having an extra blanket handy in case it gets really freaking cold i'm a huge advocate for buy once cry once and uh especially when it comes to gear because you need something that's going to last and i prefer to choose a company that is more sustainable because it makes me feel better about my purchasing decisions and my consumerism. Rumble fits that fold really well. Um, they're on a mission to introduce the world to better blankets. They recycle over 5 million plastic water bottles a year and they offset their carbon footprint significantly. Uh, their stuff is weatherproof, durable and cozy and it's made with the same technical materials used in premium outdoor gear and activewear. So the optimal blanket for you in all kind of winter conditions if you're camping. Um, they also make awesome pack towels. That's just a staple in my kit, no matter what I'm doing. If you're interested in getting cozy this winter, hit up their website and use the code out of bounds for 15% off eligible products. Katie, do you wanna like introduce yourself quickly? Tell everybody who you are and what you do. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> Okay, um, my name is Katie Combalusier. I'm from Toronto, Ontario, and I'm a paraplegic, Paralympian, and family medicine resident. Sick. That was like super great Spark Notes version. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long have you been on the Paralympic team for? I've been on the team for just a year. Um, my kind of journey to the Paralympics kind of happened really quickly. Um, from, from the time of my accident to the time of actually completing at the Paralympic Games was less than four years. So I learned how to sit ski, started training, started racing, and then qualified for the, the Paralympics in that sort of timeline. So it was very quick. And yeah, I only really joined the team last year uh, for the Paralympic year. Holy shit. Yeah. So what many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions. Yeah, that's so badass. What yeah. like, um, so you had a, like a history in skiing then like you, yeah. Yeah, I grew up skiing um, with my family in Collingwood, Ontario. We're members at Craigley Ski Club. Um, so I've been skiing since I was two years old and my whole family are skiers. Um, went through the racing program there, raced until uh, the end of high school and then kind of transitioned to coaching throughout my university years. Um, so definitely had a really strong skiing background coming from racing and then I moved out west after university and got more into uh, kind of backcountry skiing. So I was really exposed to 
all different types of skiing. Um, yeah, so coming into sit skiing after my accident um, was a no-brainer, really. I obviously, skiing was such a large part of my identity, and I had to continue doing it, and I will hopefully do it for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's freaking sick. What was like, what's it like transitioning to sit skiing? Like, did you find that um, you were able to find similar movements and like edge control? Like, how did your skills transfer? I think just having all the knowledge from skiing really transferred very well. Yeah, like you said, in terms of edge control, turn shape, stuff like that. But it feels so different when you sit in a sit ski. It's it's nothing like skiing. I actually felt like it was more like snowboarding to start because you've got one ski underneath you. You're just switching from edge to edge. And a lot of the control is coming from weight shifts rather than movements in your legs. So... I've, I'd snowboarded a little bit growing up as well. So all of that together really helped me um, pick it up really quickly. So by day two, I was independent skiing all over the hills. Um, but when it, when it came time to actually get into racing and start doing some courses, um, my background in ski racing definitely helped there, um, having, having a lot of knowledge about racing and how it all works. Yeah. Sick. Um, okay. Do you need like crazy arm strength? Like, is it <laughs> like, <laughs> you just, <laughs> um, it's yeah, it's a lot of arms, obviously. Um, a lot of probably. Well. um, yeah. both of those together is kind of how you control the sit ski. It's just weight shifts. And then a lot of the arm strength is more for the pushing and all of the other aspects of so getting on the chair, getting across the flats. Um, that's where the arm strength really comes in. But when you're skiing down the hill, a lot of it's just technique and kind of more fine movements. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I like, um, you, well, I don't know if the internet knows this. I can't remember if I've said it before, but I work for Alpine Canada. So that's how I like got your contact. Yeah. Um, but watching the Paralympics, it, it was insane, like sit skiers and like speed events, like you guys go down hard. Like if something goes wrong, it is just like, like it's like I was standing up watching all of the athletes go down <laughs> and like this event, just like pacing back and forth from my computer. It was just all these holy shit moments. Like, yeah, it is yeah. terrifying when you're, stra you're strapped into this like sit ski that <laughs> weighs a lot. Um, so if you get off balance, basically there's no way to recover. As soon as you're, yeah, as soon as you're falling, you're just along for the ride. So you're just kind of tumbling through the air. Um, thankfully I've had no really big scary crashes, but it's it's definitely um, something that happens to sit skiers and you're just so vulnerable flying through the air um, with your arms flailing around. That's why having such like good strength and conditioning, having really, um, strong upper body is so important to be able to fall safely and not destroy yourself when you crash. Yeah, no freaking kidding. Yeah. Uh, so skiing seems so badass. Like, I would actually just love to try it sometime just for that perspective of what it is actually like. Yeah. And then you coming from racing, you made a pretty quick turnaround into sit ski racing. Yeah. But um, what was that timeline again? Yeah, so my accident was in March 2018. Um, and then I returned to snow um, December 2018. So 
I learned to ski over that Christmas break, essentially. At the time, I was a medical student in Ireland, so really didn't have a lot of time on snow because obviously not a lot of snow in Ireland. So all of my skiing was done over Christmas break. Um, so that first season um, in 2018, I skied like two weeks, skied every day I could. Um, and then I didn't ski again until the following uh, winter where I, again, just kind of picked up where I left off and then actually came back and raced in the Ontario Winter Games that year. And then COVID happened. So um, basically all the opportunities that I was going to have for further skiing that year were gone. So I didn't really ski again until last winter, the winter before last winter, where I spent a month in Banff training with Rocky Mountain Adaptive. And then that's when I was invited to um, the Alpine Canada Prospect Group um, and did one camp with them and then broke my wrist. So <laughs> it wasn't a lot of skiing, to be honest, um, but I made the most of any time I got um, on snow because I knew it was so, you know, such a rare opportunity coming from a different continent back to Canada to ski. So I really took advantage um, of every opportunity I had to ski and really give it my all so that I was getting maximum, you know, yeah, <laughs> the maximum amount of uh, training for what I had. So, and then last year, um, I, when I kind of joined on with the Paralpine team, I skied more last year than I had in the previous three. So, um, yeah, it was a quick timeline. <laughs> Super quick timeline. Um, do you mind if I ask what, uh, like what happened in your accident? Yeah, so my accident was in March, 2018. So I um, was a medical student at the time. So I was in my first year of med school in Ireland. Um, and I'd just come off of a year, um, a gap year between my undergrad and med school. And during that gap year, I moved to Revelstoke and really got a taste for backcountry skiing. So was really hooked on it and really wanted to do a lot of skiing. But moving to Ireland where there's no mountains was really tough for me. So I made sure I had lots of opportunities to go on trips throughout the year. So I went to Revelstoke again for my Christmas break. And when I was there, I was chatting with uh, one of my friends from Revy. And she's telling me about her friend Sophie, who lived in Grenoble, France and told me that I should go meet up with her for my reading week and do some skiing together. So I did exactly that. Booked a flight out of Ireland on St. Patrick's Day. So that's kind of how committed I was to going skiing. Um, met up with Sophie and the next day we decided to just do a quick little ski tour um, just close to town in Grenoble, France. And we toured up with two of her friends from school and uh, got to the top of the mountain, transitioned um, into ski mode, and just as we were descending, um, an avalanche broke out, caught myself and one of the other guys, Sven, and um, we were carried down the mountain in the avalanche. Um, so I had a severe impact um, during the avalanche uh, to my back, um, which which broke my L1 vertebrae and completely shattered it. Um, but thankfully I wasn't buried in the avalanche um, and I was able to be rescued out. Um, Heli lifted to the local hospital where they did a spinal fusion and I was diagnosed with an L1 spinal cord injury. How long were you stuck in France then? Cause your family is all in Canada. So yeah. you were at that point 
pretty stuck in France. Yeah. So I, once I got to the hospital, um, my parents were contacted pretty quickly and they were able to fly over to be with me because I was stuck there for two weeks in the hospital, kind of unsure of what the next step were, how they were going to get me home. Because my back was so unstable, I really had to like stay lying flat. Um, I couldn't bend my back at all for two weeks. So it was a really big challenge to move me on a flight back to Canada. Eventually, um, through help of family and friends, um, we found a um, an airline that was willing to do a medical evacuation back to Canada. And I came back to Toronto, spent a further two weeks there in hospital before being transferred to a rehab facility in Toronto. So how long was that total rehabilitation process? Because you're now a month in and then you have to rehab. Yeah. So I finally got out of the hospital about mid-April and then I was in the rehab facility until July. Um, so a couple of months there, um, basically all day, every day, um, physio, occupational therapy, um, gym sessions, really getting out as much as I could in my short time because I knew that I had to go back to med school in September. So um didn't have a lot of time to rehab, but so I was an inpatient rehab for a couple months and then I moved to outpatient doing physio every day um, from home and then flew back to Ireland at the end of August. Throughout that process, how was it like mentally going through that? Because I'm sure you have just waves of different emotions that you go through from the initial injury to just keeping your head up that entire time that you're trying to do physio because that's every day for a long time yeah yeah like you said like, oh sorry I was just like I'm listening to all of this and I'm like this is a tough bitch like holy crap like you are super resilient like <laughs> and like I yeah just like the the mental aspect of it I think too and like bouncing back and like yeah, you're 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 a tough ass chick. But what was the what was the what was the the mental part of it like for you? Yeah, the mental part, like exactly like you said, it's definitely waves. Um, very extreme waves as well. Like I really tried my best throughout the daytime when I had visitors, when my family were there, when people were messaging me to be super positive and you know, tell everybody that everything was going to be fine and really focus and put all my effort into physio. And I was studying still at the same time. So really just trying to distract myself and stay as positive as possible as possible. But that meant that every single night I was absolutely totally overwhelmed by grief and sadness and just left alone with my thoughts finally when I was trying to get to bed. So ended up crying myself to sleep pretty much for a couple of months, just dealing with that, like the grief of the loss of who I was essentially. Um, well, that was kind of the biggest impact for me. I always kind of identified as an athlete, as an outdoors woman, really was proud of what my, my legs could do. And having that ripped away from me when I was told that I would never walk again, um, and that I'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life was a really tough pill to swallow. Um, and that on top of 
just dealing with trying to maintain a positive attitude throughout the days was just, it's just exhausting. So really, really tough mentally, but I think that being able to distract myself during the daytime um, with focusing on what I could do to get better um, was just, was a really important thing for me. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Renee. We're really always talking over each other. (laughs) Um. You need like a talking stick. Here you go. It's like your turn. We do. <laughs> okay, but you go first. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I just want to acknowledge like how it is interesting to hear both sides of it because with social media, you just see kind of the wins, right? Like, oh, okay, now you could do this today, or like the smiles, but they don't necessarily recognize that you did. Do you have a grief process that goes along with that? Like you said, like feeling like you lost that part of yourself where like as time goes on, I'm sure that that in itself shifts as you like move into being a new person and having new experiences. But there is like, you know, there's two sides of that story. We don't always get to see the other side. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I haven't really shared that side of the story because I mean, it's, yeah, it's so easy to say everything's fine and like really share the positives. And I think in a way it helps me to get all the positive feedback um, to get through those hard times when people are being like, you're doing so great. Like, we're so proud of you. It really, it does mean a lot when, um, when you're kind of struggling um, to, to deal with everything that's been going on. So by people sharing like how proud they are of you and really recognizing your determination and resilience, it it really does help to get through those harder times. But I think it is something that's harder to share openly, especially on social media where it's kind of just the highlight reel. Um, I'm definitely (laughs) guilty of just sharing the highlights, Um, but I think that most people are and that's not, um, uncommon to want to show your best self online. Well, I'm like super honored that you chose us to like, that you're sharing that with us now. Like, thank you for doing that. That's really rad. I like, I think I, I totally understand the, the highlight reel and trying to stay positive and, um, all that kind of stuff. But I think like the, the reality and those hard moments are also extremely valid and getting through those hard moments almost deserves more credibility because it's not just the good things that you have to pick yourself up through. It's the hard things and finding like, I don't know, a reason to keep showing up to the good things. And for sure. I I totally get that. Even still now, four years after the accident, I like I'll have days where it hits me all of a sudden and that grief just comes back. It's almost like I didn't give myself enough of a grieving period by by being so positive all the time. So it, it will still come in waves and all of a sudden I'm faced with the reality um, that I, I am a paraplegic, that I do have this disability that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Um, so it really just hits me sometimes and I have learned to give myself that time to grieve and and feel sad about it because I should like I have gone through a lot and my life is is harder now because of it but um definitely having achieved all these things I 
do still look on the positive side and see all the opportunities that I've been afforded because of uh, what I've been through. Um, it's definitely two sides of a coin and <laughs> yeah. putting both together, yeah. I, yeah. I feel you. I actually had a very similar experience with finding out I was autistic, um, like the, the grief period and all the trauma that I experienced when I was younger yeah. and processing that was really hard. And then also looking forward and knowing that this isn't something that, you know, a shit ton of therapy can fix. It's not mm -hmm. just trauma. It's like my brain and the way that it's wired and it's going to make having kids hard. It's going to make finding new jobs hard. It makes my relationship challenging. And it's like, but it also gives me almost a, a new identity to like actually start knowing who I am and what I'm capable of and what my limits are and being okay with who I am, I think for the first time in my life. For so sure. I guess it's, it's maybe a bit, it probably is a bit different. Um, but I still think that like that grief is very, very valid and finding a new identity mm -hmm. um, as a disabled person and like recognizing that is part of the process. And like a huge part of that is community too. Yes, absolutely. The, yeah. the Paris commu para community and para sports, it's just, it's, it's been a like a savior, honestly, uh, having all of these people, other people on social media, people that you meet like online and then through parasports, seeing that other people have gone through the same struggles and that they've come out on the other side. It's just so reassuring to see. And now I'm at that stage where I'm that kind of role model for other people. I, I constantly have other people messaging me being like, oh, I recently sustained a spinal cord injury. I found your page and it's really inspired me to, to work hard and to stay um, determined. And I just think I, I, I always respond to every single message and make sure that like the community and all the knowledge and just the experiences are something that's shared amongst um, amongst everybody who's part of this community. And like you said earlier, um, anybody can come become a part of this community at any time. So, I mean, I never thought that I would ever be part of this. I'd never considered it, you know, as a remote possibility. But all of a sudden one day, I find myself part of this, this, uh, this rad club of badass people um, that have been through it and, I've come out on the other side smiling. So it's really cool. Yeah, that's the truth. Anytime. And for you, it was quick, right? You were out skiing, doing what everyone who listens to this podcast, skis, mountain bikes, trail runs, like all these things where like it could happen so fast and mm -hmm. turns out not the end of the world. Um, yeah. I would love to dive in since you kind of alluded to it and, and we got a little bit talking more of like the accomplishment side of things. Uh, let's talk about going to the Olympics and being an Olympian because that's really freaking cool. <laughs> and I know Tori and I talk about this as well, like outside of the podcast, but as she was working for Alpine Canada and watching the Paralympics, like how honestly, like probably cooler the Paralympics are and have people just don't know it yet. <laughs> it's way more fucking badass. Like, I mean, any like 
like seeing an able-bodied person like you know I've met some of like the men's downhill dudes and like their thighs are literally the size of my torso like they are some jacked little stunt nuggets and like watching them like shred is like yeah like that's impressive but like sitting there watching Paralympic athletes I'm just like the like the resilience the strength like the determination the sheer speed <laughs> I'm just like this is way more freaking badass than able-bodied people doing it and I just wish it was recognized as that <laughs> for sure I mean I think I think parasports community is like in general is just so badass um and now that I'm a part of it and seeing it witnessing it up close being a, like doing it um it's even more impressive honestly um yeah so what was it like going to the Olympics yeah like, I wish I could say it was like the experience of a lifetime and it was, you know, so, so much fun. But in reality, it was incredibly stressful. Um, <laughs> yep. um, yeah, I mean, I, I still had a ton of fun and it was a really great experience. But um, when you're there in the moment, and especially as a ski racer, where our events are pretty much every single day, you don't really have any time to relax. And you have to remember that you're you're there as an elite athlete and you're there to perform. So um, maybe not as much time as we would like to go around and explore the village, hang out with everybody. But I mean, do get a chance to do that a little bit. But unfortunately, because of COVID, things were, um, were a bit different. But um, it was a great experience, but uh, very, very stressful. For me, um, kind of going into it, qualifying at the last opportunity, essentially. I didn't really have a lot of time to mentally prepare, I guess, for the level of intensity that was going to be, you know, being broadcast on, on a world stage and like knowing that all my family and friends were back home watching. I put a lot of pressure on myself, um, probably too much, um, to be honest. I truly didn't have any expectations. My only goal was to qualify for Paralympics. So by being there, I'd already accomplished that. Um, but everything changes when you're sitting in the start gate and looking down the terrifying downhill course um, and knowing that you're on live TV, um, the pressure certainly uh, mounts a lot. And that definitely, was uh, the, the major factor into um, kind of my performance at the games falling in the first three races was probably entirely due to the stress and the pressure. Um, but um, it was fun at the end, um, finally getting to, to finish a few races and put down some performances and, and show, show everybody back home who was watching um, that, I, that I deserved to be there and that I was a Paralympic level skier. For sure. Yeah. I think like the stress of it is something that's not talked about, especially to like consumers or like viewers. It's like this huge show that's put on for <laughs> viewers, right? Like the production value is massive and it's a global event. And it's like to actually think about what the athletes experiences that's not just like the highlight reel. I don't think people are very aware of it. And I love seeing memes how it's like 
this dude eating like Doritos and he's got like, you know, his belly hanging out and he's sitting there like critiquing athletes being like, that wasn't that impressive. Like on the TV, watching the Olympics, it's like, he would never, okay. Like not in a million fucking years. Yeah. (laughs) I guess, yeah, it's hard for people back home to see like the the background side of it. And I guess it's not really shared that much, but as skiers, we're up before 5am every day doing our warm ups. Um, getting like and then just the journey to the top of the mountain it was it was like four gondolas and like it was just like a lot of preparation goes into a single ski run and it's probably not recognized when you're watching somebody ski for one minute on tv um there's hours of prep to get to there um just in in that single day and not to mention everything else that's happening behind the scenes working with the ski techs in the background like coaches physio everything like your whole entire day is occupied by um, optimizing your performance uh, whether it be making sure you get the right nutrition making sure your 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 body's doing well and that you're mentally ready to perform the next day it's there's a lot behind the scenes um it's not just um the fun adrenaline ride through the ski course yeah that's some like very real talk about that stuff because I feel like everybody glorifies athletes and they don't really understand like fully what goes into it but that's actually one thing I'm I'm like I really want ACA to start focusing on with content is like sharing those authentic stories because they're very humanizing and real. And like, I think people would really connect with that. And I think people are going to connect with like everything you're sharing with us today. But um, what was it like in China? (laughs) You know, like (laughs) there was some rumors about them doing some not so like legal sport things and just, you know, putting malware on people's phones so like let's just jump oh, into yeah. that quickly and hope we don't get targeted by the Chinese government <laughs> I don't even know what you're talking about like what did I miss you're not in the community Renee I mean I'm not really either I just stalk everyone on the internet but I'm learning <laughs> so yeah we we definitely had a lot of briefings before going to China about our cybersecurity and all that and we were everybody was given a burner phone for fear that, you know, that, yeah, China was going to basically hack into all of our data. Um, In reality, I don't know if they stole my data, maybe they did, but uh, (laughs) I'm still getting random calls from Chinese numbers. So uh, maybe somehow related, but I I did end up using my phone in China. Um, It was just easier for me. So uh, yeah, from that point. But everybody was really, really nice. All of the staff <laughs> volunteers, they were they were lovely. Um, it was weird because it was COVID and everybody was walking around a hazmat suit. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, but it was That's cool. some like 28 Days Later vibes. Yes. Have you ever seen that? Good, good zombie movie if anyone <laughs> has not seen it listening to this. But <laughs> um, yeah, that's freaking sick. Uh, Shit, I had a question and it's gone. I have one. <laughs> Renee can take the wheel. Okay, I'm going to like come back to my brain. Keep thinking. Um, I was wondering because historically Olympic athletes don't necessarily have a lot of funding. And like, I don't know if this is like a wrong thing to ask, but being that you were kind of, you know, you, you made it to the Olympics so quickly and then yeah having to go to China cannot be cheap and entering all these competitions and having all the 
highest performance gear to go can't be cheap. And if you're with the team, like, is there a level of funding with that Canadian team? Do you have to source external funding? Because I know there are a lot of Olympic athletes, able-bodied or not, that struggle with that. So I just feel like weird asking about money, but I'm yeah. doing it. <laughs> yeah, financially, definitely struggling. Um, not only because I have like insane amounts of student loans, but um, yeah, trying to do para sports is, is definitely not cheap. Um, <laughs> so, but fortunately, like the Olympics, that's always covered by the CDC. You're never gonna, we had a charter flight to China. It was very nice, you know, we were, we were flying, we were treated well, flying first, like first class, um, but that's all covered by the Canadian um, Paralympic Olympic Committee. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I'm responsible for my own equipment, um, skis, sit ski. Sit skis cost like $12,000 um, and they break a lot. So um, especially, yeah, coming into the sport, obviously very brand new, having no sponsors at all. Um, it's a lot of financial burden to, um, to cover those costs. And then for me as well, like flying across the country, um, across continents um, isn't cheap either. Um, thankfully, I, I did get some some grant money from some awesome organizations um, that support para athletes. So, the High Fives Foundation um, in the states um, are the ones who funded my sit ski. So that was a, a huge um, a huge relief. Um, but yeah, beyond that, still the rest of equipment and travel accommodation costs, it, it definitely adds up. To save money, I lived in a van last year. So um, that's kind of how I cut costs. I didn't want to have to pay rent. And so it just made sense to, to live out of my vehicle with my partner. Um, yeah, and it worked out really well. Um, traveling a lot um, and having like a mobile home base um, definitely made a lot of sense for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, Adam. I, I have Adam, to say because I'm gonna, I'm gonna forget it. I think we need to make a sticker that just says financially struggling. I would love to slap that on all of my gear because that's the story of my life. <laughs> I was going to say, um, Adam, who started out of Collective Podcast, he's right now doing a fundraiser where he wears the same pair of darn tough socks every single day for like, I don't even know how many days, but each day he's getting donations for High Five. So awesome. if people want to see a big weirdo wear the same socks every day, they can donate through Out of Collective I know he's like doing it on the main channel. <laughs> and then that goes to high five. And you can support awesome athletes like Kate. I didn't know that it was high five, but like since Adam's doing that, I'll just like little plug it there. Nice. Yeah, that high five. Awesome. Some serious foot fungal problems <laughs> by the end of this. Just saying, but. Or not, and it'll be the best ad for darn yeah, tough that you ever do. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll see what happens with that. Um, I actually think like 
Renee, you were so funny when you were asking that question. You were like, this might not be appropriate. I had a friend ask me because I ask inappropriate questions all the time. Like my autistic ass doesn't really realize it might be. So I always preface like, I wonder if this is inappropriate, but, and then somebody told me that just because I say that doesn't mean the question's okay. <laughs> but I was like, well, you know, I'm just going to send it anyways. Um, but I think like, like, I feel like ski racing and like skiing have such like an elitist vibe in a way it's like i don't think there really is like a like a donation culture around ski racing yeah um, it is like it's it's probably like a yeah it's a rich people sport i mean yeah. that's that's who gets into it at the end of the day i mean where i grew up skiing it's all private ski clubs where memberships cost like thousands and thousands of dollars a year um Thankfully, I was like born into it and that my grandparents were members from a really long time. So it was just like part of growing up to be there. But um, unfortunately, like my family has given up their memberships now. It's been it's it's far too costly to be part of these exclusive clubs um, and just like the access to ski racing for the general population is just it's just not there, especially in Ontario. Um, but yeah, it is kind of an elitist sport for sure. And that's just because because it is so expensive. It, skis aren't cheap. And to maintain um, performance at a high level, you need to constantly replace gear in it and every single year. And it just, it adds up like a lot. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And not to mention with like inflation and prices rising, yeah. like a single lift ticket at a lot of ski resorts is like almost 200 bucks, if not more than yeah, that, which sure. is insane. And that's like, yeah, without club memberships and stuff like that. Um, well, and you gonna... said too that the sit ski is like twelve thousand dollars. Like, hello, that's a big ass barrier for yeah. a lot of people. That's and... like three times the cost of my current car. <laughs> Just saying, like, <laughs> yeah. How did how did you get your first sit ski? Because being a skier growing up, obviously that the drive was there to get back onto. Yeah the mountain but how did it come about and I was like working with high fives like getting connected to them how did you like actually secure your first sit ski and get get going did you try it first did you yeah, yeah so immediately after my accident basically I was like well I need to find a way to continue skiing it wasn't an option for me to to give up skiing so basically right after my accident I started reaching out um finding um finding out how I could start sit skiing um so that's how I was connected with CADS it's the Canadian Adaptive Snow Sports um foundation um and it was through them that I learned to sit ski so I was able to uh borrow a sit ski that they have as part of their their program and really really liked it and basically decided that I I needed to have one for myself obviously um so I applied for a high fives grant for funding a sit ski and I got it, which was amazing um, because without that, it, yeah, it would have been a major barrier. I would have had to continue to borrow equipment that's not fit for me. Um, with sit skis, it's really important that you have them like tailored to your, your size and your shape and having a custom seat made is also very important. Um, so borrowing equipment isn't isn't the best option. So it was really important that I had my own sit ski. Um, so yeah, High Fives was able to help me out with that. And that's the one I'm using now. 
I actually never thought about that. Um, I guess it's kind of like a custom boot fit, but for your body. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's like a whole other scale. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm stoked they, you know, shout out high five. We should reach out to them. Yes. You sound dope. (laughs) I mean, Adam has the connection, but that's so (laughs) rad that they like, they're like increasing accessibility. Um, which is like, yeah, that's huge. Um, have you had any interest in getting into any other sports or like experimenting with it? Yes. Like mountain biking or anything? Oh, I'd love to get into mountain biking. Um, it would be really, really cool. I'd never mount. It's one of those weird ones because I never mountain biked before my accident. So getting into skiing was obvious and that I was always going to do it and that I always knew I'd be really good at it. Um, but mountain biking is never something I've done before. Um, and I still haven't had the opportunity to try an adaptive mountain bike, but it's something I definitely want to do. Unfortunately, it's another one of those things that are super, super expensive. Um, and yeah, not accessible <laughs> to the the... the the average population. So yeah, it's still on the list. I still want to do it, but where I'm living now, um, not very many mountains, unfortunately. So I have a a road, a bike. Um, I've just gotten a road hand cycle. So I'm loving that right now. Um, Really great fitness. Um, Yeah. I think I'd really be interested in like paratriathlon. I I love swimming and having the road bike. And then the third event, it would be pushing like uh, a racing wheelchair. So that could be something that I'd be interested down the road after I'm done with skiing. Um, Maybe something more like that. But my other sport um, is rock climbing. Um, Okay. Patiently yeah, waiting for that to become a Paralympic sport. It's not currently, but it was just added to the Olympic program in the last cycle. So if it ends up being a, a one of the Paralympic sports, I think I might have to go for it. Okay, yeah, because I remember um, like ACA released an article recently. You climbed the chief in Squamish. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. freaking badass. Like what was, I, I haven't done that sick I'm like a pretty average climber you know I'm like just kind of like struggle cuddle the wall to the top and just hope for the best so (laughs) um but like yeah what how did how did it go like kind of similar story like transitioning did you climb before and what was that like like walk us through it yeah I climbed I climbed a little bit before mostly uh, indoors just as like as a fun activity but when I moved to Ireland, um, I joined the climbing club there because it was really one of those like, oh, no, I'm, I'm moving away from the mountains. How do I still get involved in the outdoors um, where I am now? So the, the mountaineering club at my university was great and had really great exposure to both indoor and outdoor rock climbing. So did that during my first semester. And basically all my friends at my school were, were in the climbing club. So after I had my accident and returned back to Ireland, um, just kept climbing because that's that's where my community was. Um, so, yeah, I like have climbed more obviously as a as a paraplegic than I ever did before. And my partner is actually super into rock climbing, so we climb together outside all the time. And after coming back from the Paralympics. Um, that's all we wanted to do when ski, once ski season ended. It was, it was straight into climbing season. So we got a lot of climbing done around BC. And then it was always um, kind of 
in the back of the mind that we wanted to climb the chief together. Um, it was more so my boyfriend's idea. I never thought I'd be capable, but we had this weather window and we thought, well, we'll never know unless we try. So we headed out and made it up the chief, uh, made it up to the top in two days and then took another further day to get back down. But yeah, climbed it um, without any assistance, just like normal as a, on a top rope, uh, second being my partner. And it was awesome. I mean, I don't know if any paraplegics ever done that before. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, I'm just more proud of myself. I don't know if it's like a, if it's a first, um, but it's, I think it was really cool just to like gain all that altitude and see kind of, yeah, the progress from the bottom to the top. It was like climbing a mountain and yeah, it was awesome. That's it. It's literally climbing a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, I also want to say, like, you would probably whip so many people's ass in an arm wrestle. <laughs> like, is that a weird thing to say? I just hearing all of this, I'm just like, I'm like, this girl's got to be so you're so strong. Yeah, none of my shirts fit. Like, I have to keep... <laughs> I just bust it out, just like. <laughs> <laughs> That's so amazing. Um, okay, so when you said you're doing it, like, so it, is it like a, it's a multi-pitch route? And then were you camping on the way up? Yeah, so, um, yeah, multi-pitch. Um, there's a big ledge in the middle of the Chief. Um, so we are able to, we had a portal ledge just in case we, we didn't, we had no idea how slow I was going to be and how many pitches we'd make it up. We'd planned for, for two days. It ended up being three. But um yeah, thankfully we made it to the, the ledge on the first night. So there was a big um, big area to kind of set up the, the ledge and a little shelter there. And then carried on to the top the next day and then had to sleep at the top. We didn't top out until after midnight. So it was very dark. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. So like you're not only climbing it, but then you're also like, you're also carrying everything that you need to camp. Yeah, for sure. Damn. I mean, I, I had the lighter load for sure, <laughs> but I've never climbed with a backpack before that. And it was definitely something to get used to. Yeah. Um, like for me, because my legs are so weak, any little bit of added weight, I can feel it like so much. Um, it, it's yeah, it's incredibly hard. Uh, like just the fatigue um, for me, I don't feel that, you know, that lactic acid feeling like the burn in your legs. I, I don't have that feeling at all. It's just they refuse to stop. They refuse to move anymore. I'm really fortunate that I have movement in my legs, obviously, but um, it's mostly my quad muscles. I don't really have anything else. So I'm continually asking one muscle to do all of the work all of the time. So um, yeah, it's very, very, very tiring. Do you get like gnarly cramps from that? Uh, no, um, because of my injury, my, yeah, my my legs are a little bit uh, floppy. We <laughs> don't really get cramps. Okay, I'm, I'm going to do a meme reference again. And I don't, again, this is probably totally inappropriate. But have you seen those videos on TikTok where people are doing like the cool cat test where they like yeah. hook up the cats and like, when you said they're floppy, that's what popped through my head. I'm really sorry, but. <laughs> that means you're a good cat. <laughs> 
my legs would just flop around. <laughs> She's a good cat. 10 out of 10 grading. <laughs> yeah, well, they do it to see the temperament. It means you have a very good temperament. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I bet if I did that with my boyfriend's cat, she would freak out. <laughs> I tried it with my dad's cat and he's like she's like pretty chill but she was not chill with that you can hold her in like any other position and she's fine but she didn't like she's also really fat so it's probably like a lot of stress on her shoulders <laughs> like <laughs> anyways that was a derail wow thank you my brain <laughs> uh, man you were in your van probably in Squamish that is a very on brand for Squamish to yes. Being in your van climbing. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's like strictly on brand for that. Um, I wanted to like uh maybe you have to go on night shift soon, hey? How much longer do we have you for? Uh like half an hour. Half an hour? Okay, cool. I'm, we're not as pressed as I thought. Sick. Um, but I um when you like join the disabled community, I know like for myself finding out that I'm autistic, there's people that I have disclosed that I am autistic too. And then they almost seem to like infantilize me a little bit or like the autism is all of a sudden all they can see mm -hmm. in a way, um, which is like, it's conflicting in a way or, you know, you get like the good for you, like, and it, it's like, it's not like good for me. It's like, I'm a tough ass chick. Like I've existed my whole life not knowing this. And it's yeah. like now I just like know it. And I guess that's another thing that was talked about in um, this sociology article that I read about a disability from like a socio perspective. And it was like sometimes um, it's called like identity spread where a marginalized group like the dis like a disabled person, the rest of their identity is not visible anymore because people only see the disabled aspect. Do you, have you experienced that at all um, with your journey? A little bit. I feel like people who knew me before, obviously that that's not the case and they knew that I am a person outside of my disability, but it is hard, I think, to meet new people and for that not to be the first thing they think. Um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely challenging especially now because i'm meeting new people every day working as a doctor it's i get i get a lot of inappropriate comments um yeah just people not respecting um you as a human and just really just asking you about the most traumatic time in your life having don't even know your name right and they're like well what happened to you and yeah, that, that it just happens so frequently. And a lot of the time I, I just tell them because I don't know what else to do, but it, it's not really appropriate to, to kind of ask for people's, you know, most traumatic events um, just out of the blue without getting to know them first, I think. Um, so like you said, like they, dial in on the disability and that's all people see when they see you in a wheelchair. But I mean, I've also had a lot of good experiences as well where um, I'm definitely seen as a person first, but um, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen that firsthand actually in the hospital uh, with a resident that I worked with, like resident doctor and she was in a wheelchair and I had a patient that was like, 
oh, well, what do you know? And she left the room and he is like starting to kind of berate her and say like, oh, well, she doesn't know anything. And I looked at him like, that is incredibly rude. There's nothing wrong with her brain. Oh like, yeah. Oh, he was I, just being such a huge jerk. Because I don't know any other doctors in a wheelchair, and I would love to <laughs> connect with somebody who knows what I'm going through. Um, oh yeah, I'll I'll try and remember what her name was, but I'm I'm not at that hospital anymore, and I I know I like worked alongside her a couple of times. But yeah, there is, there's another one in Vancouver. <laughs> she exists. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess, do you have any, like, creating, like, I'm a huge fan of, like, equity, not equality. So, mm -hmm. like, creating an inclusive space that is respective of individual people's and, like, individual groups' needs. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's, like, you know, kind of respecting how they would like to be referred to and... I guess from your perspective and every disabled person's different, like, do you have any tips on how people could make a more equitable space and like, you know, like how, like, do you prefer like identity, like disabled person identity first language or not? Or like, what does that kind of look like for you or? No, in terms of wording, I, I, I definitely, I'm identified as I'm disabled. It's, there's Same. no way <laughs> I am disabled. Um, but I think what I was saying is just like, I, but that's not that's not everything you know I'm still a person outside of my wheelchair but when people are like wheelchair that's you know it's a bit hard but I don't I don't need to be called you know a person with a disability because I am disabled that's that is who I am um but I think that just having more knowledge about that and people try to avoid that word so much because it has such a just a negative connotation in our society people think that disabled is bad it's it's really not like i'm i'm proud of who i am and what i've been able to accomplish with this disability not despite this disability but with it you know it's it's not that i've overcome my disability it's that i've i've learned to live with it and realized that um it's it, there's a whole other community of people who are like me and um we're, we're just people at the end of the day we're disabled people we are not here trying to um ask for more than what we deserve we just want equal access um like everybody has you put that so well like that was so good <laughs> i like i know that like um like with when i'm when i ask for accommodations with my being autistic people you know, they're like, oh, like you have like more needs, like autistic needs. I was like, they're they're just human needs. Yeah, they're just different. It's not a matter of like more or less or less. It's not about severity. It's not about functioning labels. Yeah. It's just human needs. Yeah, for sure. That's all it comes down to. And it's like, I am disabled. I am autistic. I cannot separate my autism from my identity. But there's yeah. a lot of different facets of my identity too. Exactly. Yeah. So a a lot of people see autism as um uh synonymous with intellectual disability which is interesting so it's i get a lot of like well you couldn't be autistic and i was like yeah i'm smart as fuck it doesn't mean that like <laughs> you know and like there there are people that have like 
uh, intellectual disabilities as well and like learning disabilities. I've got multiple freaking learning disabilities, but like I still know how to hustle and push through it. Like, right. you know, it's, it's really interesting to hear people like to educate people in those moments. Yeah, for um, sure. I think the other thing that's really not talked about disability is that it, it's a spectrum. Um, yes. I am a wheelchair user, but I feel like every time I stand up, people are like, she's a fake um, <laughs> because I can walk. And, but I, I choose to use a wheelchair because it's the way that I can access my space like the most efficiently and it's the easiest for me. But I constantly feel like I have to explain myself whenever somebody sees my leg move and I get a weird look. Um, it's really not talked about that there can be ambulatory wheelchair users. Sometimes people, you know, have uh, like they're more disabled one day than the next, you know, it, it can fluctuate. It's, it's different for every single person and we don't all fit into one box, just like the, the rest of the society. We, we are all individuals and we have our, um, you know, differences, but. Definitely. Yeah. And that fits into like, there's like two kind of models that disability is viewed through. It's like one is the medical model, which is very like uh, diagnostic, like deficit focused, that can be really harmful. And then that influences the social model, which is those perspectives on like lack of diversity and it being a spectrum and like individual experiences. And it sure. it's where like ableism is stoked and like supported yeah. and For identity sure. is a thing, but it's a, Obviously, I went really deep into researching this because I was like unpacking my entire life. But I love talking about like the sociology and anthropology behind yeah. these concepts because I just think people are weird. For sure. I mean, that's one of the biggest reasons that I, I decided that I wanted to go into family medicine because it is, you know, as a primary care physician, you're it, like you have so much more time to to get to know people and really form a connection with them. Originally, I wanted to do surgery, but I really realized that like I wasn't going to have as great as an impact as a, as a doctor with a disability. Um, I'd, I'd have more of an effect uh, working as a primary care physician. And I think it's like really important um, to show that representation and and all facets of life. Like it's almost expected that wheelchair users do sports. But it's never expected that like um, like that we go to med school and that we become really smart and work as doctors. Like I've had people being like, "Oh, like, oh, you 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 you've been to the Paralympics, right?" Like just because I I look athletic and I'm in a wheelchair, but nobody would ever assume that I'm a doctor. You know, um, it's kind of it's kind of weird just like to have that. Yeah, the lack of representation of people with disabilities in different different careers, I guess. Um, so for me to be a doctor in a wheelchair um, and kind of be the face almost of um, yeah of, of like what we are able to do, and then also at the same time helping other patients who have disabilities um, through my firsthand experiences, knowing that the person who's treating them has gone through something similar. So that's actually so yeah. important, like mm -hmm. super important to have that, that mm -hmm. representation, especially in your field, like yeah. the, the gaslighting and like, there's so many like intersections there, like, mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, no, that's freaking, that's a really good point though. Can I, can I ask for your vibe read on the Paralympics? Like, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> okay, you can like, well, okay. I'm autistic. I am disabled. I also work in marketing. And mm -hmm. the vibe that I get from the Paralympics, especially when you look at like the amount of like marketing budget, funding, media exposure, like interaction mm -hmm. online, like social media, like looking at a full marketing mix and spread on it. Yeah. It, it almost has like, it's like a belittling tone in a way, or it's like a pity tone in a way. I gotcha. Yeah, I think that it's definitely framed in a way that, oh, look at these people. They're so inspirational. Yeah, I fucking hate that shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, in a similar situation with a disability and somebody who's who's living with their disability is constantly labeled as inspirational just because they're, they're doing everyday things. Um, so I think that, yeah, it, in terms of the marketing for the Paralympics, it's definitely leaning towards that. But I think I think things are improving for sure. I think um, that things are heading in the right direction. And uh, like you said at the beginning, um, watching the Paralympics now, people aren't just like, oh, good for them. It's like, wow, these are these are high level athletes doing stuff that I couldn't do that's really impressive not because they're disabled be just because it's really impressive you know yeah exactly. exactly yeah yeah and I think it's the language that you used to and you describe it really well but it's it's not in spite of yeah. your injury or your situation it's just you being a really good athlete and you're making the best of a hand that you're dealt but that single-handedly doesn't just make you automatically an inspiration yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, you yeah. are, but <laughs> because I've spent an hour talking to you about all the ways that you are. <laughs> but there's no, a lot that goes into that. It's not just like an automatic marketing. Yeah. You're not inspirational because, yeah, because of like, you know, the disability. You're inspirational because you're a motivated, tough, because of who like, you are. badass chick who does so many cool things and is like, not only unbelievably like athletic and fit, but also like your your mental capacity and like authenticity and self-awareness, like those are all like super redeemable human qualities. So thanks. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. That was a lot of emo yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you know like a, a similar example that I've seen in the the autistic community is like love on the spectrum right yeah you know, the tv show mm -hmm. it's like the the one just came out for the usa and i was watching it and there was more diversity and like different people's experiences on the spectrum so some that have like uh higher masking abilities and like that i definitely identified with but then the the way that they framed it and the tone like they use very infantilizing music like do 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 and they just like shared like these moments where parents were I don't know it just like it, it was very like yeah like oh look at these people like they're so inspirational kind of relationships and it's like, like your face as you're to, trying to describe it it's like you can tell it just gives you the ick 
it yeah. gives me massive fucking ick because like people after I had said I was autistic they'd be like oh did you watch love on the spectrum I'm like yeah what did you think about it and they're like oh it's just so cute and it's so inspirational I'm like yeah but would you ever date an autistic person after watching it and they're like well no and I'm like <laughs> it's not helping then is it like what the fuck is this it's like we're not like a circus show for you to watch and find like this there were people <laughs> like what the fuck <laughs> so yeah Anyways, I'm glad that the Paralympics is getting, that's sick that it's getting better. Cause yeah, y'all yeah. freaking deserve yeah, I, it. I think if we want, like, I don't know if it's ever gonna happen, but I mean, I think in an ideal, the ideal way for the Paralympics to be set up would be like, we're part of the Olympics. It's all one, you know, like- that's, Yes, we're just, that's, that's exactly what I said. Yeah. Um, the Commonwealth Games does it really well. It's all one event under one roof, you know, like Paralympians or para-athletes competing alongside able-bodied athletes. And it's not something that's impossible. So I think that we're, we're getting uh, there. I mean, it's, it's such a big event, so I don't know if it would ever be possible, but there's no reason why we, we, we ski the same courses, you know, it, it's, just, it's the same event. <laughs> we're just in a different, a different class, that's all. Yeah, and you'd already have all of the a lot of the infrastructure set up because you're setting it all up for one event anyway. All the film crews, everything, it's yeah. all there. Good idea for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> having them separated is kind of like a Regina George, like you can't sit with us, which yeah. is just like that shouldn't be the vibe really in sports. So. I mean, I think it would just go a long way towards like having more like coverage and just having it all as one thing and would just have a lot more exposure to mainstream if it were like that. But definitely. Well, fun marketing fact for you. Gen Z watches the Paralympics more than they watch the regular Olympics. Wow, that's awesome. Right? So that's actually something that I put in like my content strategy for ACA. I was like, there's a huge opportunity here. And there's also a really big disabled community online. I was like, we should be like using athletes to develop like our, some of our social strategies to appeal to younger audiences. And it has to do with them being like global consumers and like connected consumers where they grew up on the internet. Like their, their perspectives on like diversity, equity, inclusion everything is much further than like older generations so yeah. as the boomers die out and they rise to power <laughs> like you know it's like shit is gonna change but that's a cool fact so i think you're yeah, really I love that. that's awesome coming. i had never watched the paralympics before <laughs> before becoming disabled which is i mean i think that's a like a a story for most people you know like you never consider that you're going to be part of that community so why should you care um, I think everybody should care because like, yeah, like we've said, like you could be part of it any day and um, we're people just like the rest of you, but yeah, yeah, I've never, ever watched it before. So being part of it was cool. <laughs> this year was actually my first time watching it. And it was like shortly after I found out I was autistic and I was just like unpacking so much internalized ableism and thinking about why I didn't watch it before and like what society had taught me about stuff and I was just like, what? It made me so mad. I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is so, yeah, yeah. but. Yeah. I mean, I still definitely have that internalized ableism as well. Cause I'm always like, oh, but like, I went to the Paralympics, but like, whatever. Like, there's not that many, like, you know, my category is quite small. Like, do I even get to be proud of myself? Because like, I didn't 
maybe have to work as hard as the Olympians do to get there. But, but I, but I did, you know, it's just in a different way. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, that internalized ableism lasts for a long time. <laughs> Same. I'm still unpacking it every single day. I'm so, also hearing a little bit of like maybe imposter syndrome in what you're saying as well, where maybe it's because it was your first time. I don't know, but it sounds like something that you're telling yourself, whether that's true or not. And yeah, I don't know what the solution is because I definitely feel that imposter syndrome in so many things that I do. <laughs> so I think it's just like a normal human thing. <laughs> that we like sometimes will like try sure. and well, push our own accomplishments down a little bit. Yeah. But and maybe yeah. that's what makes you humble. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't believe in being humble. I believe in like celebrating. Like Renee, when you do something sick, I'm like, that's my motherfucking best friend. Like you go, Glen Coco. I'm like, that was freaking sick. I was like, I want to celebrate everyone's stuff. And I'm not gonna feel ashamed for like sharing something that I did that I'm excited about I don't think anybody should but I also figured out that's one of my values in therapy when I was trying to unmask from pretending to be neurotypical so there you go um <laughs> but I uh won't dive into it now but if you ever feel like doing it researching the ties between ableism and capitalism is really interesting cool yeah. it's like fully tied to like productivity um like burnout culture working as a slave to the man and like this capitalistic dream that everybody's chasing to be on time be perfect be this and this and this and that's like a huge reason why a lot of disabled people get burnt out um yeah. and it, it it's not just ableism doesn't just affect disabled people it also affects able-bodied people like too so mm -hmm. non-disabled people but it's really interesting to see like those different patterns and ties and how those things kind of interact with each other. And yeah, you know, like colonialism is BFFs with the patriarchy. The patriarchy and colonialism are BFFs with capitalism. It's just like all kind of connected. Yeah. Yep. So that's my nerdy bit. I think we have to wrap it up though, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> it was like really nice to meet you for the first time. And this was a great conversation. So <laughs> I definitely have one question before we go. Being as okay. a big stick energy podcast, and we love to talk about how skis are often undersized for women, and that's kind of how we came up with our name. But is there anything that is different for you in choosing skis, not necessarily for racing, but just like your everyday free ski with sit skiing compared to how you would have chosen a ski before? Like, what do you look for in a ski <laughs> or how you like to ski? Yeah. Great uh, question. My skis need to be indestructible. <laughs> it was what I look for in a ski. Sit skiers absolutely destroy skis. I've gone through many pairs this season or last season. Um, yeah uh so a ski that will hold up to the absolute like trauma that a sit ski puts on it um that's what i look for in a ski so yeah so something with metal maybe i was yes. gonna say metal, <laughs> metal thick sidewall yeah. just like wide <laughs> it's like a freaking beefcake of a ski <laughs> yeah. and then how long of a ski would you choose for free skiing yeah uh, probably pretty long like 
190 even maybe yeah shit like yeah that's uh, that's some big stick energy that is i got i had an opportunity to go heli skiing um at the end of the season this year um and i was on a 176 um and basically just like drowned in powder because it was not big enough um but that's just what i had at the time so definitely needed something with like I basically needed a like a massive snowboard <laughs> to stay above the snow. Um, but yeah, so a, a really big stick for me, please. Definitely big stick <laughs> yeah. energy. We we need to get more stickers and send her some because that's like <laughs> huge stick energy. Yeah. Um, what's your like? What's your racing ski setup? Like, what's your preferred racing ski? Uh, I ski on heads. Um, they're they're known to be good for sit skiers just because they. They hold, they hold up. Um, yeah, that's just kind of what I fell into. Are you on like the, Not hero, the hero series or like how long with those yeah, guys? The World Cup skis. Um, yeah. the, so we ski on the same standard as the, the Women's World Cup. Okay, sweet. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I work for ACA, but right. I'm still a total noob. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> but Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, Let everyone know where to find you. Yeah. Any plugs that you have to make. Now's your chance. <laughs> yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Combo Kate. Combo. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay, sweet. And were there any like brands or humans you wanted to plug quickly before you dip out? Um, yeah. Yeah high fives they're they're the best that's about it um not sponsored or anything but yes high fives is out there supporting um individuals with spinal cord injuries and really helping them access the outdoors so give them a follow well thanks for coming on today yeah that was sick thanks okay (laughs)